Hello and welcome to episode two of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. In this month's episode, Simon will be catching up with Jonathan Herbs for the latest on the Brexit negotiations. Simon will also be joined by Carolina Herkestreiter from Frankfurt, who will be discussing the German position on reverse solicitation. And I'll be chatting to Lisa Lee Lewis about Norton Rose Fulbright's operational resilience survey. But before we kick off with the interviews, over to Simon for a quick rundown of some of the biggest RT stories this month. Simon. Hi, Arup. There's been an awful lot going on this month. In terms of the headlines, I think I'd start with sustainable finance. In particular, there's been a letter from the Commission to the chairs of the European Supervisory Authorities regarding the application of the regulation on sustainability-related disclosures in the financial services sector. Interestingly, the letter states that the application of the regulation is not conditional on the entry into force, of the applicable regulatory technical standards. In addition, market abuse continues to be topical. Uh, At the end of September, ESMA issued a review report on the market abuse regulation following its first in-depth review of the regulation. And the report contains a number of recommendations that's been fed to the Commission. Uh, There's also been a very useful speech by the FCA's Julia Hoggett on market abuse in a time of coronavirus, which is well worth reading. There's also an awful lot been going on in the fintech space. Uh, Three European developments are worth noting, first being the European Parliament adopting a new crowdfunding regulation that will give crowdfunding platforms the the ability to become authorised in one EU member state and passports throughout the EU, complying with only one set of rules. Secondly, the Commission's proposing as part of its digital finance strategy a pilot regime for market infrastructures based on distributed ledger technology. The DLT pilot will see the creation of an EU-wide sandbox that will include temporary derogations from rules for market infrastructures that wish to experiment, trade in and settle in transactions in financial instruments in a crypto asset form. And thirdly, the Commission's issuing a draft proposal for a potential regulation on markets in crypto assets This is the first time the Commission has proposed legislation in the crypto assets sphere. Internationally, in keeping with the fintech theme, it's also worth noting in mid-October, following a public consultation, uh, the Financial Stability Board published its high-level recommendations for the regulation, supervision and oversight of global stablecoins. And just to finish off, in terms of looking forward, horizon scanning, We saw at the end of September the UK regulatory authorities publishing an expanded version of their regulatory initiatives grid that was first published in the summer. And more recently, the European Commission has published its work programme for 2021. In particular, 2021 will be an important year for the MIFID II and MIFIR review. So that's some of the biggest stories on regulation tomorrow this month. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Simon. And uh... If you're listening at home and you want any uh, further information on any of those stories, please uh, log on to regulationtomorrow.com. But without further ado, uh, let's now hand over to Simon and Jonathan, who will be discussing Brexit. In our usual Brexit slot, I'm joined by Jonathan Herbst, our Global Head of Financial Services. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Simon. Uh, starting off, Jonathan, um, what's your take on the recent statement from ESMA and then the FCA on the share trading obligation? Yeah, so as far as ESMA is concerned, it's pretty much 
what they said before. There's a small tweak in relation to EU stocks that are denominated in sterling, but there aren't many of them. But you know, to the extent that a firm is within scope of their obligation, then uh, then you know it will need to trade on a European market in an in-scope stock subject to the sterling carve-out, if I can call it. Very different to the UK approach. I mean, the FCA effectively last week uh, made a statement which basically said that as far as UK firms are concerned, within uh, within stocks that are in the scope of the UK STO. Um, so, you know, to bring that down to practicality, it's a stock that is traded in both on both an EU market and the UK market. Uh, firms will be able to trade in either place. Now, the politics of that is not for me, but it clearly creates a great divide between the UK regime, which has effectively granted an equivalence uh, recognition versus the EU regime, which has not. Um, one caveat on that, though, and this is, you know, I've just talked about it from the point of view of the firm. If you look at it from the point of view of the market, the FCA statement effectively rehearses the point that a European market needs to have legitimate access to the UK market and, you know, makes the point that can be either through being an ROIE under the temporary permission regime or compliance with the terms of the OPE. There has been much debate in the market about what that actually means, that last one. Does it mean a market can have unauthorized members or must it only be authorized members? Probably not the time on this podcast to go into that, but I think for markets, they need to get proper advice on that. For firms, it's considerable liberalization from the UK and nothing in return from the EU. And turning now to the bigger picture, the negotiations and the equivalent assessments, would a positive equivalence assessments from the commission now at this late stage make a big difference to firms end of transition period planning? So I think let, let's just be clear what we're talking about here. If you mean would, would an equivalent under, for example, MIFIR article, article 46 really make a difference to firms? Yes, I think for those firms that are in the institutional market, the ability to do cross-border business would make a big difference. I think in reality, that is not on the table right now. Um, in terms of the free trade agreement that's being negotiated to remind everybody, I think what that is talking about is traditional free trade type provisions, not full equivalence. That is dealt with under MIFIR, EMIR and the other equivalence assessments. So I think the honest answer to your question is, yes, in theory, if that were to happen in very short order, it would make a difference to people's planning in the institutional sphere. But in reality, nobody's expecting that in the next sort of two and a bit months. Uh, and therefore, that's not going to happen. And therefore, I think we, you know, the planning carries on. And I think the real question is, if there is a, an agreement, the FTA in some form or another between the UK and the EU, will that make the difference? I think in reality, people's planning will carry on precisely because it will not include a full equivalence. And looking at life after the transition period, what's your take on the financial services bill, particularly the section that introduces the FCA's new duty to make rules for unauthorised parent undertakings? So I think the main message of the bill is there's much more in there than meets the eye. That would be my macro message. And, and we might do a separate podcast on some of the detail. Um, it's one of those classic sort of um, indicators of the way the UK regime is going. And I think it's a really important point. You now have the Treasury and the UK regulators free and able 
broadly speaking, to make their own regulation. And we are slowly beginning to see what that could mean. And I think people need to keep a close eye. So just take the example you've, you've given, holding company power. There are a number of different powers in there, um, including a, a mandatory requirement for the FTA to make rules for prudential purposes on holding companies. That's a slightly different approach to the current way the UK has implemented the consolidation requirements. But equally importantly, some hidden powers, or I say hidden in the sense that they weren't particularly obvious, uh, in relation to holding companies more generally for the PRA and the FCA, quite extensive powers to make information gathering rules and other rules uh, in relation to controllers and, and others involved in their management. That's actually pretty controversial stuff not particularly well-trailed, not particularly revolutionary for other countries, but very different to the way we've traditionally approached regulation. So I think the main message, if you go back to the Treasury statements in June, is, you know, this is going to be a genuinely different regime. It will take a while to emerge, but people need to be positioning with the regulators and the Treasury. If there are areas that concern them, they need to get in there and make their points, because otherwise it's not like the old days where everything really was decided in Europe. We now have a lot of power sitting in the London authorities, and I think that's the main macro message here. Thanks, Jonathan. That's really interesting. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. In this segment of our podcast, I just wanted to get your thoughts on reverse solicitation, which is something I know you've been looking at for UK clients as part of their Brexit contingency planning. Yes, that's right, Simon. Reverse solicitation can play a role in a UK firm's Brexit contingency planning should the UK and EU not agree a free trade agreement at the end of the transition period. And there are no mutual positive equivalence determinations. If used in accordance with member states' local law, reverse solicitation removes the need for a third country investment firm to establish a physical local presence requiring authorization. It's therefore key that UK firms and other third country firms get legal advice from lawyers within the member state they are seeking to use the exemption in. That's interesting. Um, when we talk about the law, what do you exactly mean? As a concept, reverse solicitation is found in EU legislation like MIFID II, MIFIR or the AFMD. Given some of the ambiguities of these texts, different EU national regulators have come up with their own interpretation. Although it's worth noting that ESMA has tried to create some supervisory convergence. For example, in its Q&As on MIFID II and MIFIR, investors protection and intermediaries topics, ESMA has tried to clarify some of the key concepts. Okay, so focusing on reverse solicitation under MIFID II and MIFIR, what are the key components of the exemption? Mm, there are really three key parts to the exemption. First, the third country firm must evidence that the investment service is provided at the exclusive initiative of the EA client. Second, the third country firm provides only categories of products and services requested by the EA client. And third, this third country firm does not solicit, promote or advertise any new investment products or services in any way to the EA client. Okay, now moving to the practical side of things. 
When using reverse solicitation, what are some of the practical things a firm should be aware of? Um, when using reverse solicitation, there are a couple of things that need to be considered. Most importantly, the firm will need a paper trail. It will need to ensure that it can demonstrate in evidence how contact and communications in respect of, an, of initiating any investment service or activity comes exclusively from the EA client without any undue influence, direction or collaboration of this firm. Okay, and how is this usually done? This is usually done using a client disclosed attestation or affirmation in a contract. And what else does a firm need to think about? The firm will also need to ensure that its related processes and controls provide ongoing assurance and that adequate records are kept should there be challenge from the local member state regulator. Also, the firm's systems and controls will need to ensure that the firm's website and other online presence does not nullify any objective assessment that the client acted on their own and exclusive initiative. Thanks, Caroline. That's very helpful. We'll shortly be posting an update on reverse solicitation on our Regulation Tomorrow blog. Thank you, Simon. Bye. I am joined this month by Lisa Lee Lewis, who is Head of Advisory in Nordstrom Rose Fulbright's Risk Consulting Practice in London. Now, over the last few months, Lisa has been involved in conducting NRF's Operational Resilience Survey, and today we're going to talk about some of the findings. So firstly, hello, Lisa. How are you? Hi, Arup. I'm good, thank you. Thank you Excellent. for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, hopefully it's not uh, the last time. So um, maybe we'll, let's just kick off um, with some sort of uh, context really about OPRES. So um, where exactly are we with operational resilience as a kind of concept? I mean, I recall uh, there was a consultation paper earlier in the year, but what's the current status of policy in this area? Thanks, Ruth. Um, perhaps we could first recap on the concept of operational resilience. Mm -hmm. So just as a recap, it's the ability of firms, financial market infrastructures, and the financial sector as a whole to prevent adapt, respond to, recover, and learn from operational disruptions. Now, in December 2019, the Bank of England, PRA, FSA, they published a separate consultation papers, uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, and they proposed new requirements and expectations for firms uh, to build operational resilience. The consultation period closes on the 1st of October. The original deadline was in April. However, this was extended as a result of the pandemic. And the FCAPRA expect to publish their policy statement and final rules towards the end of this year after they have taken on board the feedback provided by various firms and industry associations. Mm -hmm. Now, the PRA will also consider if regulatory reporting requirements for operational resilience, and they will consider consulting on this particular point, uh, either at the end of this year or beginning of next year, if appropriate. So in all, it is expected that the implementation period uh, or the date for the new rules when they will mm. be expected to come into force will be no earlier than the end of 2021 in order to ease the burden on firms due to the impact of COVID. 
sure, sure. And I and I guess we've you know we've also got Brexit in there as well. But um, yeah, I, I understand that that's not that's not the reason why why anything is being delayed. But um, so it could could be it, it looks like some time really before this is going to be sort of codified um, into rules. Um, but uh, in the meantime, we've obviously been doing our own uh, operational resilience survey report. So let's uh, maybe speak a bit about that. So. Um, Lisa, can you perhaps explain what sort of things um, you were asking and who responded? Yes, so earlier this year, as you have noted, we carried out a survey of 50 global financial institutions and we explored how they are managing their operational resilience, both leading up to and during the pandemic. Um, the survey covered a number of areas, in particular in relation to governance and oversight, outsourcing and systems, regulatory change and guidance, key challenges, concerns during the next uh, 12 months, lessons learned, and we also talked about budgets and uh, the framework of operational resilience. So in terms of some of the questions that we asked respondents, mm. um, it was around the maturity of the financial institutions operational resilience framework, whether operational resilience is one of the top five agenda items at board level, how the governance and oversight has changed. Um, we asked questions around the firm's risk appetite and organizational structure. In terms of regulatory guidance, we asked what types of guidance firms would welcome from regulators. Mm -hmm. We also um, discussed the enforcement action in terms of mm -hmm. what firms need to think about um, uh, and what they think regulators will focus on in the coming uh, year to the 12 months. Uh, and lastly, we asked firms uh, what their top three challenges were that they had experienced during the COVID crisis so far and concerns over the next 12 months, including lessons learned. I see. I mean, it's actually been, I suppose, uh, uh, I think serendipitously is perhaps the wrong word, but um, it's, uh, you know, this, this survey has come at a, at a particularly opportune moment, given given the fact that people have have had to really test their system. So uh, I'll be qu quite interested to sort of read what what people have said about that. But um, maybe if we come on to on onto findings now generally. Um, so um, you know the, this report is now available, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk uh, a bit more uh, in a short while about how to get hold of it. But um, what are some of the most interesting findings uh, that you saw in the reports? Yes, there, there were many interesting findings and just to highlight a handful, mm -hmm. um, I think 80% of respondents said that they had now enhanced their governance and oversight, which is expected, mm -hmm. um, that that's a huge proportion of the respondents. 70% of respondents expect that organisations will increase their operational resilience budgets in the coming year. And another, a couple of other interesting areas was around um, the response from uh, their operational resilience frameworks and, and whether firms had felt that was moderate or mm -hmm. required improvement. Um, I also found it interesting to hear about how respondents had identified conduct risk, cyber and data security, cash flow and profitability, and the impact of loan loss provisions as primary areas of systemic concern. Um, and lastly, an overwhelming majority of survey respondents noted that it was important to obtain further guidance from regulators on operational yeah. resilience before they really uh, further amend their business models. And, and this, of course, would help firms meet their regulatory obligations and expectations, 
but really importantly, to help keep the financial institution resilient financially, yeah. operationally, and digitally. Mm. And, and sorry. Oh, oh, no, so it was interesting to hear uh, about the percentages involved and all of these figures uh, and further information around uh, the challenges experienced through the pandemic, lessons learned, concerns mm. over the next 12 months, expected areas of increased regulatory scrutiny can be found within the report. Right. Is it just on just uh, maybe just so if we can close on on a sort of point on COVID was was there any sort of uh, particular issues that that sort of seem to come out of the woodwork uh, for firms during during COVID that, that were spoken about in the reports? Yes, there was a number of areas. So in particular, remote working issues, IT resilience infrastructure, monitoring of individuals um, whilst they're working from home. All of these factors really played out during COVID uh, and continue to play out. And of mm. course, will be a, a huge um, factor which needs to be considered within the operational resilience framework going forward. So thank you so much, Lisa, uh, for your time and for those uh, insights uh, on the contents of the report. Um, if you're listening at home and you want to get hold of a copy of that report, please visit NortonRoseFulbright.com uh, and you'll find registration information on there. So that concludes uh, our latest Regulation Tomorrow podcast. I think there's a lot of interesting themes coming out of this. There's still lots to think about as regards Brexit, but also new regulatory issues are on the horizon. Lisa's talked about operational resilience, and we'll see the regulatory policy papers from the FCA and the PRA next year. Um, ESG is coming more and more into the, to the fore, as we've seen from recent developments on Regulation Tomorrow and the papers that the Commission publishing. And as ever, uh, RegTech, SubTech continue to be key themes for the financial services sector. Catch us next time on Regulation Tomorrow podcast. Cheerio.